0: He expects us to live differently, not in order to get saved, but because we are saved. Well, if you would, please, uh, we're going to uh, consider a little bit of our history. And I want to call your attention to something that Rhoda has put into the bulletin here for us. It is this little page. It looks nice and bright and red on the one side and has some yellow at the other side on the top. And there are some historical dates that are listed here, and we're going to make mention of some of those as we go along. And I also want to call your attention to the beautiful photograph of the painting of the church that um, we w- actually, this picture hangs on the wall at uh, Betty Miller's place there at Mennohaven. It's a picture that was hers and uh, I was visiting with her shortly after she moved into Mennohaven and I saw it there and that was the first I'd seen it. It I think was still at the house uh, before but was in a room where I had not seen. And I asked her, I said, could I take a photograph of that? She said, yes, that would be fine. So that is, um, that's what the church used to look like right across the street over there. And uh, if you would have come, you would have come in a buggy, or on horseback, or you would have walked. Um, it, it uh, It was very much a country church. Of course, we were kind of reminded that when you got out of your car and got a whiff of that good, fresh country air this morning. It reminded you that we're still a church out here in the country after 170 years. You know, most churches and denominations don't last that long. 50 to 75 years is usually about the time span in which a a church or a denomination which is founded on truth survives. And then uh, along about the 50 to 75 year mark, that's when the second generation, sometimes the third generation of people begin to get involved in the church, and that's when oftentimes it begins a drift away from the Word of God, away from the truth. It's very easy for the world to have a profound influence upon the church. It's it's tough for the church to have a profound influence on the world because the world is set against Almighty God. They don't want to hear the message. They have their own ideas. And, and to be confronted with the truth is an unpleasant thing. As we experience that even in our own lives, don't we? When the Word of God, maybe we're reading at home, or, or maybe you're coming to a worship service and the pastor has the audacity to preach something from the Word of God that doesn't line up with what you're doing. Boy, you get mad at the pastor, right? Please don't get mad at me. I didn't write the book. (laughs) The one we have a problem with is God. That's the problem of humanity. We have a problem with God. But God has reached out to us. God has sent His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to teach us about Himself, to teach us who God is and, and to reveal God's wrath, to reveal God's compassion, To reveal God's justice, to reveal God's mercy, to give us a full-orbed picture of who God is. So for this church to have been 175 years in existence and still be preaching the Word of God, that the Bible is still the centerpiece of all that we do and all that we teach, that is a remarkable occurrence and I think is evidence of God's extra special mercy upon this congregation. It really is. Because so many others have started well and have fallen away. If you take a survey of the theological condition of churches in this country today, you would have to conclude that we have apostatized. We have turned away from the One who gave us His Word, from the One who gave His life for our salvation, from the One who rose from the dead, guaranteeing our eternal life we have apostatized. You look across this nation and you see churches closing by the thousands every year. You see pastors standing behind pulpits preaching a message that doesn't come from the Word of God. A message that maybe is God is love and we should just simply let anything go. That's not what the Scripture teaches. The reason Jesus came, the reason He died, the reason that He shed His blood as an offering for sin is because we're not okay with God. If humanity would have been okay in God's sight, there would have been no need for a Savior. So, the very fact that Jesus came and lived and taught us about God and died reveals that this world is not all right with God. Even though God is love, God is also righteousness, justice, holiness, and truth. God will not allow his holiness to be violated without consequence. And so, beloved, that's the message that we have preached here in this church for 170 years. And by God's grace, we're going to continue to preach it until He returns. The invitation to salvation is open to all. But sadly, sadly, not all are willing to receive it. And in rejecting it, they consign themselves to be the recipients of God's wrath. Pulpits in this nation that preach anything other than that message are apostate and under the judgment of God. It's a disastrous state of affairs to be true, but you know, it has been prophesied. It has been revealed in Scripture. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 1. It says, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control brutal despisers of good traitors headstrong haughty lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God and we would like to think that that was a description of all those people out there right but it's not if you read the end of the verse it says having a form of godliness but denying its power Paul was writing to Timothy who was his protege a young pastor and Timothy was going to be given the responsibility of shepherding God's flock of being the pastor in local church and Paul is warning him about all the things that he's going to face and one of the things that he's going to face right there in the church are wolves in sheep's clothing Apostates who try to look religious and yet deny the very foundation of the truth. That's the day in which we live. But it didn't catch God by surprise, did it? Listen to second Peter chapter two verses one through two. It's been a perennial problem. Peter is writing to Uh, the Jewish believers who were scattered abroad. And he says, but there were also false prophets among the people. Uh, He's he's writing to the Jews and he says, look at your own history. There were false prophets even there, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction." And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Oh, beloved, in so many ways, the modern church across this nation particularly, but even the modern church around the world in Europe and other places, has lost its message, has lost its foundation, has lost the truth. It's kind of like in the days of Hezekiah. When Hezekiah wanted to turn his heart to the Lord, and they started cleaning out the temple, and guess what they found there in the temple? The Word of God. You say, How in the world could the Word of God get lost in the temple? Well, it's because the people who were supposed to be of God had lost their view of the Word, they just kind of set it aside. God was no longer the center of their lives. He was out there somewhere on the periphery, if at all. And that's the tragedy that you and I face. That's the challenge that you and I face. And that is the same challenge that every group of believers has ever faced is to stay true to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To stay true to His Word. Look at that little paper that uh, Rhoda put in there for us the German Baptist brethren came into Pennsylvania primarily in two waves the first in 1719 the second in 1729 and they settled in Germantown PA which is now almost just a swallowed up suburb, suburb of Philadelphia but it was actually a separate community back in the early 1700s think about our nation we basically lived right along the coast and, and maybe up some major rivers and tributaries that uh, emptied out into the Atlantic Ocean or into the Chesapeake Bay, but we were just a baby nation. We just were, one well in fact we weren't even a nation yet, we were a group of colonies associated with Great Britain. And as the brethren came looking for, as their English settlers before them had done looking for religious freedom looking for the right and opportunity to worship God according to the dictates of their conscience to according to what the Word of God said some brethren showed up in Germantown they had left Germany because of persecution and they gradually moved west in this brand new area this brand new colony eventually to become a nation According to early Brethren historian Henry Holsinger, the Antietam congregation, which was originally known as the Conakajig congregation, was organized in 1752 north of Waynesboro along what's now route uh, 316. They had about 400 members and it was from that group then that other congregations began to develop. In the early days, um, the, the pastors, the elders at the Conakajig Church or the Antietam Church uh, would go and visit. Uh, there were about 80 people that lived close to Waynesboro so they could gather f- there at the meeting house for more regular worship. But everybody else was kind of scattered around over the county. and So this group of pastors, two by two, would go and they would visit with the folks. And they would all meet together quarterly. So about four times a year they would meet together with all 400 or so of them but you might guess that as time went by and as their numbers grew they decided that maybe we ought to branch out a little bit and have some churches in other locations and so in 17 or excuse me in 1850 there were some brethren who began meeting together right over there at that house that's on the southeast corner of Pioneer Drive and Branch Church Road, or I guess it's Valley Camp Road on that side of the intersection. And they began meeting in a home there, and they met for prayer, and they met for Bible study. And I don't know how often, it may not have been weekly, but it was regular enough, and they spread out in their influence that in 1853 they built a meeting house you know I like that term the meeting house because this building is not the church this isn't the church because the church is not made up of things the church is made up of believers of people who have put their trust in Jesus Christ who have acknowledged that He is, in fact, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and have confessed their sin to Him and received Him as Lord and Savior. That's the church, the called-out ones. That's the word ecclesia. It means to be called out of. There's another word that we sometimes translate church. Koriakos means belonging to the Lord. So the ones whom God has called out and called to Himself, the ones who belong to Him, that's the church, and they gather in the meeting house. I like that term. This is the meeting house of Brant's congregation. And it was right over there, and you can see the little monument that was constructed out of the stones that were taken from that church building in the 1970s. It had... Gotten to such a condition that it had to be completely dismantled. It, it just it was not safe anymore. And so we, we aren't meeting very far today from where our forefathers met 170 years ago. You can see there some other particularly um, notable dates. It was in 1871 that two additional meeting houses. well I got to back up just a minute because the Welsh run church and some of you are here this morning and you identify with the Welsh run church they got started in 1810 again it was an offshoot from the Antietam congregation but that's way down there in Welsh run a pretty good little distance especially if you're driving a buggy it's a long way down there Um, so they started in 1810 and up here in 1853 meeting house was built and people from Greencastle and from Upton and from laymasters and marks and all of these little communities St. Thomas all these little places around here would come here for worship and so in 1871 it was time for the congregation again to divide not because we didn't like each other not because we didn't love each other but because it was a little difficult to get everybody traveling all that distance at one time and in one place. And so in 1871, two additional meeting houses were formed. The one there at Upton and the other at Shanks, which is just a little bit south of Greencastle down there along the Williamsport-Greencastle Pike. The church was still one congregation. It was the Back Creek congregation. And there were about at its peak eight ministers who would rotate between the three places and and they would preach at different times in the morning and then at the evening service they would preach as well. And during the course of a year all eight pastors would have preached in your church whether you were here at Brantz or whether you were down the road at Upton or whether you were further down the road at Shanks you would have heard all eight pastors you would have come together as a congregation, one congregation on various occasions for congregational business and so forth. But then, as groups grew and things changed, in 1980 the three congregations realized that you know what? We, we really are functioning more as independent congregations from one another. It was getting more and more difficult to get everybody together and do things. And so then, in 1980, each of those three became their own distinct congregations. And so the Back Creek, which was kind of the umbrella group, was dissolved. And you had Brant's church, you had Upton, and you had Shank's church all meeting there separately. But the commitment to serve christ the commitment to proclaim the truth was still evident in all three locations previous generations of our spiritual forefathers were absolutely committed to knowing and obeying the word of god to the best of their ability and understanding the bible was the text and the only text that was used for teaching and preaching. When you came to Branch Church, or to Upton Church, or to Shanks Church, when you, if you would have come, when it was Back Creek Congregation, if you would have come before any of that and, and worshipped at the Antietam Congregation, or Conic-a-jig Congregation, the Bible would have been central. And it still is today. And it will be in the generations to come the Bible was the source and is the source of information and the final determiner of right and wrong when questions would arise you can go back and, and look at the minutes of the local church or you can look at the minutes of the German Baptist brethren which we were known as for a while and then eventually in 1908 changed the name to Church of the Brethren you can go back and look at the minutes and questions would come to the larger body and and they would be answered for a long time from the scripture eventually that happened less and less and it was more study committees and researches in other places and so forth but that's beyond our scope for today but the Bible has always been and should be our sole rule of faith and conduct that's what our forefathers did did they do it perfectly (laughs) no they weren't always consistent in their application of Scripture to daily life they weren't always correct in their understanding of Scripture sometimes they got it wrong Uh, you know and there were there were people just like us in that previous generation We are appreciative of them and we thank God for them, but we better not not put them on a pedestal because they were fallen creatures just like you and I are. And a lot of times they got it right and sometimes they got it wrong. But they never lost that desire to be a Christ-centered church. To be a Bible-centered church. To be a witness to to the things that God was doing in the lives of his people. That has been foundational all through the years. It was a costly decision for our forefathers. Particularly I'm thinking of Alexander Mack and his wife Anna. and There were six others who in 1708 broke away from the established churches in Germany at that time. You had the Catholic Church, the Lutheran Church, and the Reformed Church. That, of course, grew out of the Protestant Reformation 200 years earlier in 1517. Well, what was it I said? 50 to 75 years later, the church begins to drift if they're not really, really careful. Well, what began in 1517 as the Protestant Reformation and enjoyed the blessing of God and, and brought truth and righteousness to the forefront once again and made sola scriptura, only the Scriptures, one of the watchwords of the Reformation, 200 years down the road, <laughs> they had lost focus again. And various individuals, Alexander Mack being one of them, would look at the Bible... And would look at the church and say it's not lining up. We're not the church that God wants us to be. We're not the kind of people that God wants us to be. And so in August of 1708, Alexander Mack and his wife Anna, Andreas and Joanna Boney, Johann and Joanna Kipping, George Grebe and Lucas Vetter left their established churches were baptized publicly in the Eder River near Schwarzenau, Germany, and the Brethren movement began. They believed in a believer's baptism, which was remarkable. Because most everybody else in Europe at that time was being sprinkled as a baby and that was their salvation and that brought them into the church and that registered them on the public rolls and, and, and that was the big thing. Mac and others, and, and not just Mac, but others in that area were saying, no, baptism is something for believers. And, and, and babies can't believe anything. They don't know anything. There there seems to be a, 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 a responsibility that we respond to the revelation of God through His Word and we accept Him or reject Him. And if we accept Him, we become a believer in Christ and as an outward manifestation of that inward decision, we follow the Lord in obedience to baptism. It was costly. For some of those who were called Anabaptists, which means to baptize again, which was not the name they took for themselves, but was a name given to them in derision because they rejected infant baptism. Some of those who persecuted them said this, all right, you want to be baptized? We'll baptize you once down and zero up. And they were drowned. They were killed because of their faith, because of their desire to honor God, because of their desire to do what the Scriptures said to do. They didn't consider their own lives so precious as to disobey the Lord Jesus Christ. They entrusted their lives to Him and they obeyed the Lord Jesus and they paid a price for that. That was the extreme price. Most frequently, it was the price of social ostracism and and loss of employment and loss of business and so forth. There were all kinds of ways that the society was able to bring pressure upon these folks, our spiritual forefathers, in order to make them conform to what the world was saying. But these folks had clearly focused in their minds not a city in this world, but a city in the heavens made without hands. They were like Abraham of old in Hebrews chapter 11 who was looking for that city whose builder and maker is God. They were looking forward to the future. They they took... The words of Christ seriously when he said that he's going to come back to this world. And they were looking for that. They were longing for that. But they realized that Christ could tarry. He may not come back in their lifetime. They realized that he may in fact, or they may in fact have to pay a price for their faith. And one day Alexander Mack in his musings wrote a hymn. Let me see if I can find it. Because I had it marked and then I pulled my page out and now I have to find it again. The hymn that he wrote is called Count the Cost. There it is. And it has Thirteen verses. Would you like to sing it with me this morning? All (laughs) thirteen? Let me just read a couple. This was a song, a hymn, that he wrote uh, as a baptismal hymn. Because one's public baptism was kind of like that bright line in the sand. You're not saved by baptism. You're saved by grace through faith. Not of works. Baptism is simply that outward manifestation of what's going on already inside the heart. And it's a public declaration that from this day forward, I will follow Jesus Christ. Listen to some of these words. Christ Jesus says, Count well the cost when you lay the foundation. Are you resolved, though all seem lost, To risk your reputation, yourself, your wealth for Christ the Lord as you now give your solemn word. Now believe me, when Alexander Mack wrote this, he understood to risk your reputation, yourself, your your very life, your wealth. You're risking everything for Christ the Lord. second verse goes on like this. Within the church's warm embrace, the child of God is molded. God's spirit lighting up his face and by his grace enfolded. His childlike steps trace out Christ's plan and he becomes a godly man. Within the church's sheltering fold, God is his ills... Oh, there, I skipped a verse. Within the church's sheltering fold, God is His truth revealing. Through Christ His Son, all men are told to heed His warm appealing. For all the truth through Him made known is sealed with blood that is His own. The things that Jesus Christ said and taught, He sealed that testimony with His own blood when He died on the cross for your sins and for my sins. The hymn goes on, but I'm going to stop there. A couple things that are really important though is counting the cost and realizing that a relationship with Jesus Christ, though it provides salvation freely, is a costly relationship. It's one where Jesus is Lord. It's one where Jesus demands our obedience to Him because He is our Savior. He expects us to live differently, not in order to get saved, but because we are saved. Do you see that difference? That's a huge difference. We're called to live a holy life, and it might be costly. A second thing that I want us to see that was foundational to the brethren one of the reasons why the name brethren was chosen was because we realize that we are in this life together God calls us to himself individually but he does not call believers to be separate from one another we are the church the called out ones plural We are called to be part of the body of Christ. And that body has various members and each of the members have different gifts and different abilities. And together, God uses the church to accomplish His purposes in this world. And so the church was extremely important to our forefathers, to Alexander Mack and to those who were with him in his generation. To those who were uh, coming to this country in 1719 and 1729. And what was one of the first things that they did? They gathered together for worship, even though they were scattered. Their first, coming in 1719, their very first celebration of baptism and love feast and worship was on Christmas Day of 1723. Within four years, they were able to establish themselves and and their homes and they associated together and they said, we need to function as a church. And they did so. It was important to them. Very important to them. Beloved, when Max says, you know, it's within the warm embrace of the church that the believer grows to maturity, he's absolutely right. Brand new believers come to know Christ. What do they know? They know that God loves them. They know that Jesus died for them. They, they just kind of like that little children's song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But is that the sum total of the gospel message? Is that everything that the Bible has to say? No. That's the starting point. That's the point of entry. Where we respond to the love of Christ. We respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We turn to God and say, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And then we are like a brand new, newly born baby who cries and messes and needs lots of nurture and care and growth and that's the way we are oftentimes as brand new spiritually born christians we cry and we mess up and we need instruction and we need growth and we need care and we need to be cleaned up and we need to be taught what's right and what's not right and we need, and that happens beloved within the warm embrace of the local congregation within the church and that's why it was so vitally important to the early brethren as they moved westward hey we're moving west we're looking for a, a, a f- we're looking for farmland they were mostly farmers we're looking for farmland we want to make a living we want to honor God with our lives which means we need to establish a church. We've got to have a meeting house. We need to come together as the body of Christ and we need to encourage one another. We need to be challenged from the Word of God. We need a public witness in the place where we live. And beloved, that was built into the very fabric of this congregation in 1850 when they began meeting over here in the the house right across the road and worshiping, praying, talking to one another, reading the word it was built into the fabric here and I am so glad that it was and it needs to stay the central focus of this congregation. What, what does the future look like for us? Well, I can't give you specifics. But I can give us principles. I can help us to see, based on the history of this church, based on the history of churches in this nation, I can help us to see that there are two potential futures for us. One is that we just water down the Word of God, set some of the things aside. And appeal to that broad religious feeling in the nation today. People are looking for a spiritual experience. So let's not be restrictive. Let's not be, you know, too tightly tied to the Word. There's some things in the Bible we like. God is love. We like that. Let's, let's just pull out, cherry-pick some of those things, and we'll fashion ourselves a gospel that. That is, appealing to the modern age. And if we follow that course, if we go that direction, we will become like every other apostate church that has ever existed. And we will put ourselves under the judgment of Almighty God. The lampstand will go out. And generations to follow us will be lost thinking all the while that they're spiritual that they're religious that god's going to let them in and they will be wrong and they will spend eternity eternity in hell that's one possibility the other possibility is to do what our forefathers did to make the word of god central in all that we do, to look at modern society, to look at modern issues, to look at modern life, to look at our own lives through the lens of Scripture. There's two ways to do this. Let's suppose that my finger represents some question, some issue, some problem, some crisis, whatever it is, either in your life individually or in the life of our community. So here it is. We've got a problem. Now, I can do this. I can focus on the problem, and the Word of God is far away and out of focus, and I'm not going to really address the problem from the Word of God or I can do it this way I can look at the problem through the lens of Scripture and I can discover those principles and sometimes even those direct statements of God that answer the question and then I can follow what God says in His Word whether it's in my life personally Or in our life together as a body of believers or as a nation beloved I want us I hope I pray that we will always look at life through the lens of Scripture because that's the only safe and sure way to do it yeah it's costly we have to count the cost We may risk our reputation. We may risk all the stuff that we have in this world. We may even find that our own lives are at risk. We may risk friendships. We may risk family relationships. We may risk a lot of things. But Scripture asks, Jesus asks a great question. He says, what has a man gained What has he profited if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? I mean, what is more precious? Your very soul for all of eternity? Or a friendship? Or a family relationship? Or a job? Are those things more valuable than your very soul or the stuff that we fill our houses with this is serious serious business our faith in jesus christ uh, i used the phrase in in sunday school this morning our faith in christ is not an add-on it's not that we we, we let God into our lives just a little bit on the edge so that we have a fire insurance policy and, and we're going to live our lives any way we feel like it. That's not how it works, beloved. That's not it. Jesus Christ is at the center of our lives. He is the motivation for our life. He is the guiding principle for our life. He is either Lord and Master And Savior, or He's nothing. We can't have it both ways. I am so thankful to God that for 170 years, this congregation has said, Jesus Christ is Lord. His Word is authoritative. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It shows us the way of life. And we're going to be faithful to it. I am so thankful that God has raised up in this place a body of believers who are committed to that Word. Which is why I have hope for our future. Why I have great hope for our future. I haven't said it in a long time, but I still believe that it's true that the greatest days of the true church are still ahead of us we may see an outpouring of God's Spirit and we may see the day come when when people men women and children by the hundreds come to know Jesus Christ and uh, in truth and their lives are absolutely transformed from darkness to light and they may choose to come and worship here and to grow with us and that would be wonderful or we may see that as the world becomes more and more dark and and our little candle burns more and more brightly that we may attract more and more oppression and opposition and even persecution and we may see our numbers dwindle but yet if we are faithful to jesus christ and his word we will be a church a congregation that god says well done good and faithful servant the light will burn brightly and god will be pleased and even after our bodies are cold in the grave we have the joy of resurrection to eternal life where anything that we have given up here will absolutely pale in comparison to the glories which God has prepared for those who love him. Beloved We have generations of people yet to come. The challenge before us today is to take this precious Word and pass it on to them through our own actions, through our own beliefs, and through our teaching and instruction. To pass it on to them. To bring them to that place where they put their trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Eternity, beloved, hangs in the balance. Our challenge today is to be faithful to what we've always known, to what we've always done, and to be faithful even to the end. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for those whose names are known to you, who have been faithful to you from generation to generation to generation. Father, I am thankful that you have given us your inspired, inerrant word. And you've given it to us in a language that we can understand. And Father, you've opened our hearts and our minds that we might understand what it is that we're reading and Your Spirit works in the hearts of Your children to help us apply it and to live it out every single day. Lord, bless this congregation. Strengthen each one. Whatever it is that we're facing in life personally, Lord, help us to look at that challenge through the lens of Your Word. Help us to, to support and encourage one another and to strengthen those Knees that become weak from time to time. Because Lord, there are times when our faith is weak. It totters. It it trembles. But Father, help us to come alongside one another and to encourage one another and to point us to Your Word and to point us to Christ. Father, I pray that You would in fact use this church in great ways in the years ahead, however many there may be. Lord, if... If there's ever a congregation here that can celebrate the 340th anniversary, praise God, may they be able to do it in truth. But Father, if you give us just a short time, I pray that we will be faithful. That we might live the kind of life that enables you to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you for this day when we can remember these things and be challenged Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, for your work, and we pray all these things in your name and for your glory. In the name of Christ, our Savior, amen. (laughs)